0: From the hills of central New York and the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. My guest on this episode of Frankly Speaking is Dr. John Sirockin, distinguished professor of turfgrass science at the University of Tennessee. John has been a guest on this program, chatting about putting green management in the transition zone and field safety in the NFL. Today, we're talking soccer with John and all the fascinating research and efforts being exerted to host the 2026 World Cup in North America. But before we do, John has a long history of advocating for safe athletic fields, and we all know that nutrient management is critical in sand-based high-traffic systems. Your partners at the Plant Food Company have the nutrient products to meet all your needs when balancing plant health, player safety, and playability. Learn more at plantfoodco.com. Welcome to Frankly Speaking. I'm with a frequent guest on the program, Dr. John Sorokin, the distinguished professor of turfgrass science at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, where I was just chatting with a colleague of yours last week, Dr. Jim Brosnan. And boy, it was so great watching the graduation recently, the December graduations, John. Your program looks as strong from a student's perspective as it's ever been. Welcome to the show. And is that
1: true? thank you. Yes, yeah, it's, it's definitely, we've got about 45 undergrads in our program right now. And like you saw, we had six graduate this fall and every single one of them had at least two job offers each, as many as five. Oh, and so, so it's, it's a great time to be graduating in turfgrass for sure.
0: No doubt. And I knew you when you were a student, getting started out yes. uh, with with a couple of hooligans named Horgan, Steve Kurda, John Steyer was hanging around back then. Yes, and back then you were undergrad at Michigan State and was bubbling up right when I was heading out. I was there from '90 90 to '92, almost '93. This Silver project, the project where. FIFA was bringing the World Cup to the United States in 1994, I believe. Yes. And... It was required to have natural grass. And the tourist bureau wanted to put a game at the Silver Dome and came to the turf team and said, "Can you do this?" And I remember famously saying in the meeting somewhere, if you give us enough money, I'm pretty sure we could figure it out. <laughs> that never <laughs> stuck. But you were yeah. involved in the strategy and execution. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like to be, around at that time, trying to tackle that project, number one. And number two, sort of what it was like executing it and pulling it off.
1: Yeah. So, you know, that was a long time ago. And I transferred to Michigan State University from the University of Calgary, where I was in political science and geology. (laughs) Um, And I was in the two-year tour program at the time, wanting to get into golf course architecture and construction. I grew up playing sports in Canada and Calgary and loved soccer. And when that project came around, I went and asked Trey Rogers if I could work for him on that project because it was something I wanted to do. And he said, go see his technician, John Steyer. And so I went and saw John Steyer and he hired me and I worked on it for two years. And the second year, it was me and Brian Horgan. We're both working for John Steyer. And he pulled us aside and said, you two need to go to grad school. And so if it's anything, it's his fault that Brian and I are where we are today.
0: (laughs) So (laughs) what did you have to do? Tell me the logistics of and make sure everybody understands the logistics of how you executed the task at hand.
1: Obviously, I was a laborer at that time working on the project, so as you said, they had to play on natural grass and that was the first time a modular field was constructed and built to put indoors and play a major event on grass. This is where I really learned, you know, leave it to the experts on a lot of things. So Trey always said, you know, the grass, put it inside and we'll figure out how to keep it alive. But putting it inside, you know, we're not engineers. And fortunately, Detroit has a lot of really strong engineers. And there's a company called Three Dimension that worked for the big three automotive, Ford, GM, and Chrysler. And they came up with those hexagon-shaped modules. And they mm-hmm. said that the hexagon module was the best design because when you put them together, there's three corners instead of four corners. Mm-hmm. You could build them larger and structurally they're stronger. You know, the, the bees figured it out billions of years ago and they designed the honeycomb. <laughs> so.
0: So these things are built mm-hmm. and now you got to get soil in them and grass on them.
1: Right. So we built them. They had drainage in them and they're roughly about eight feet across in diameter. They're six inches deep. But there's three inches with a three-inch ring that went around it that snapped on. And we filled them with the sand peat root zone. This is one of the first uses of sod grown on plastic, too. Is a blue rye mix in California. And it was trucked in refrigerated trucks in April of 1993, the year before the World Cup, because they had a trial run. FIFA wanted to do a trial run. So they started what's called the U.S. Cup. And now they have like the Club World Cup the year before and things like that. So we did a trial. The sod was shipped. In the parking lot, we grew this field, and it was about two months old by the time we went to move it in, but that sawed on plastic, because the roots aren't sheared when you harvest it, because they're bound by the plastic barrier, Mm -hmm. when you roll it up, when you put them down on that sand root zone within 30 days, because of gravity, the roots grew all the way down to the bottom of the modules. They just made their way down, and they didn't have to regenerate new roots, but they just probably pushed their way down.
0: So having the sod on plastic enhanced the rooting in these root zones that were, as you indicated, somewhat suspended above the preformed plastic.
1: Right. Because that was only a month and a half, two months old before we moved it indoors. This is before grow lights and things mm-hmm. like that. So, into a stressful low light environment, if you had sheared those roots off, that plant, once it's moved inside, is going to have no roots. And it's also going to be elongating, eviolating to try to get that light to grow. And it's just going to really be stressed. So, the fact that it had an intact root system, it was only going to be stressed from the foliage up, which was still, we had to keep it alive for 30 days for 94 and in 2000, or 1993 for the pre trial.
0: Okay. So, what were the challenges once you brought it in? I remember talking to Trey, well, you know, John, we're talking 30 years ago, pal. You were you, you were yes. still a teenager, yeah. I bet, back then. Uh, <laughs> I, and, wish. And, I was <laughs> in my 20s,
1: but yes. <laughs> and, you know, Early 20s. Uh,
0: that's exactly right. I mean, I remember talking about the light levels underneath that dome, which were pretty common back then. I probably Syracuse people had one similar to that back yeah. in the day. There wasn't much natural light. Was the 30 days primarily about the light, or were there other issues like moisture and diseases and air movement stuff?
1: Everything, because, you know, that stadium wasn't designed to have grass indoors. So... I remember going in there in the mornings and everything would go to the ceiling and then you'd walk in and it would rain back on top of you. So it dripped down on it. So air movement, which means it was a great environment for diseases to occur. So we did have to monitor for things like pink snow mold or something like that that could really happen, some powdery mildew on the bluegrass. You know, just like any time you put grass in shade in a poor circulating environment, definitely.
0: Do you recall any player feedback that you got about the quality of the playing surface? I mean, one of the things is if it's slick, the ball skid pretty good, right? It gives you the attacking ability that you'd want. But also at the same time, you don't plant your foot right, you could be slipping around. Now, you were probably rooted enough, as you said, but over time... 25 days in, you got to believe it started to etiolate and really thin. Did you get feedback from the players uh, relative to how good the surface was all those years ago?
1: Yes. The media was all over this because it was such a big event. Mm-hmm. And that first year, the U.S. Cup, it was uh, England played Germany, the two national teams in there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's some famous players. Jürgen Klinsmann, Effenberg, and Lather Matthias for Germany were there. And okay. we were all nervous. Like, what are they going to think? But this was a brand new field, perfectly grown, never been played on. The sod was a year and a half old, bluegrass, grown on plastic, really dense. So when we put the field in, installed it, the challenge is getting that first row lined up. So when you go that whole 105 yards, it's not going into the wall and things like that. We get in there, we get all ready, and the Germans are regimented. They're like marching out (laughs) on the field. What's the first thing we think when they step up on the field? They start punting the soccer balls and trying to hit the roof of the Silverdome. They didn't care. They play on grass their whole career. You know, the best field is the one that's not talked about after the game. Exactly right. Boy, isn't that something? And the game went off. It was great. The coach for England, I think they lost that game to Germany, said the only people that would complain about this field are the bad players because that's all they would have to be able to blame because they can't blame themselves.
0: <laughs> so It is interesting,
1: right? Yeah, it had really high accolades. Yeah. yeah.
0: So you pull it off. But you know yeah. from that moment that there's limitations, right? Right. Now, we're not going to fast forward all the way to Cutter, but there's an interim period where... You got involved, of course. Your research program got involved in synthetic turf. You got the sports turf research program going on out there, is looking at synthetic turf. You've published a lot in the academic literature on high traffic sports turf and managing sports fields. So you've been at this for a really long time, John. It seems to me that you know it's always maybe been in the back of your mind they were going to try to pull this off again, and you certainly saw that with the retractable fields in and out. But did you ever think right you? be sitting where you're sitting now about to take this thing on 30 something years after you bumped into it the first time
1: yeah no it it, it surprised me because i remember when the world cup ended in 94 we got to go up on the roof and jump on it like a trampoline which was really scary (laughs) but what you did is we laid down we poked up these little air vents and you could look down on the field and realize the pucker factor sets in because you're being suspended by nothing but air that's right but looking at the field and you could see the wear patterns that occurred from four games and six or eight practices. And it's that kind of diamond pattern. Mm -hmm. And that was the aha moment for me that said, this is really cool to be a part of, and this is what I want to do. And John Steyer telling me and Brian (laughs) to go on for grad school, that's where I was committed. I wanted to do sports turf research. And that was where it's taken me to where I am today. I was very fortunate when John Steyer moved on to go to wisconsin took your job at wisconsin that's when exactly you moved right. to cornell yeah that's right i became trey's technician and so i, I oversaw oversaw his sports turf research and trey let me do what i wanted a lot of times he'd come out to the research farm and would ask what's that going on <laughs> it was it was something me and tim vanini and jason henderson said oh, well gosh. we just were thinking this and we wanted to do that and trey's like that's pretty awesome like he yeah. gave us carte blanche to do whatever we wanted and that was really cool he kept the reins on us, but he, he always did that for us, so it was good. Yeah,
0: and, and of course, is there a better place to just flourish in turf than Michigan State? I mean, everybody's <sighs> bleeding green out there. It, I'm sure you're at a place yeah. now where they bleed orange.
1: <laughs> yeah, we got Steyer, we got Horvath, and myself here, so we got a lot of green. <laughs> but we're, but yeah, no, that was a great time to be there. You know, we had Phil Dwyer, Doug Karcher, yeah. Brandon Horvath. Chris Miller. You were there, but Eric Miltner had just left. Yes. And there were so many people that went through that program that got exposed to. And then, you know, they have the Valderrama Scholarship. So it was all the Spanish people. It's just the international connection. I know it's a great, I was there 11 years. I got four degrees and as much out of it as I could. So John, along
0: the way, you started noticing these things, but it seems to me, you know, your interest early on was in architecture and building. So it's like you have this sort of Engineering part of your brain. I've watched you win awards for innovative uh, SOD development work, right? Mm -hmm. But you know, at the end of the day, what I wonder if what appealed to you about sports turf was the amount of technology that was being used there versus what I see on the golf side that I think is lacking many ways. Did the technology in the sports turf area really interest
1: you maybe even more so than the golf stuff did? Yeah, a little bit. Actually, I got hurt playing sports growing up. I tore my ACL and I always wanted to find a way, something I could make a difference in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, looking at the way that the technology used. And I've learned so much getting to work with the different technologies and what's going on with player injuries. I've been very fortunate for the last 14 years to represent the NFL Players Association for field safety performance. But I get to go to their meetings and sit in the Mackie White meetings. And I'm there with five neurosurgeons from Harvard, from Duke, from Vanderbilt, from Boston University that to learn about all of the things to make people safer and athletes safer. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, what cool way to be involved and try to make a difference, not just at that level, but K through 12 and little kids that don't have insurance, don't have the trainers looking after them on the sidelines. So that's been my focus. And how do we tell the difference in surfaces with the different technologies? And that's where we've advanced and come up with our own tools because mm-hmm. people are still using the Berlin athlete, which was developed in the 50s to measure surfaces vertical deformation and energy restitution and you can have a natural and artificial surface be the exact same but you know they're different so we had to come up with a tool that how do we tell the difference between artificial and natural grass because it's they are different you're trying to make apple juice out of oranges when you're trying to make one play like the other
0: it's so fascinating i'm with dr john sirak from the university of tennessee i'm frank rossi this is frankly speaking we'll be right back Managing soil physical properties are critical in high-performance sports fields and golf courses. These systems need to function at a high level, and for that, the pros at Dry Jack Services have the expertise and equipment to meet your soil amending, top dressing, and aerating needs in one pass. Contact your local DryJack rep for more information or visit dryjack.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm with John Sirakin from the University of Tennessee. And really, John, what is your title on this big FIFA grant that you got and are sharing with your former mentor, Dr. Rogers? What is your role? Are you the research leader, principal investigator? What would we call you in this project in the lead up to the 26?
1: I'm the lead PI, but I put it as co-PIs with Trey Rogers. And, and John Steyer is actually on the grant with us as well. So, you know, it's a way to get the band back together. Get the band uh, back. back- together.
0: Okay. So let's go through some of the numbers first so that everybody gets an understanding of the scope of this thing. Let me see if I've got some things right. There's 16 main venues that all have to have hybrid turf system, lights, and vacuum assisted drainage. Yes. So that's the 16 of where the big shot games are going to be played. Can you talk a little bit more about the broader footprint this thing's going to have? Maybe we're more ready for it now than we were in 94.
1: Well, we are and we aren't. It's 16 stadiums, and it's gone from 32 participating nations in the last World Cup to it's going to be 48. So it's going to be the biggest World Cup ever in participation. So it's going to go to even more games. Eight of the 16 stadiums are artificial now, so they have to be converted to grass. And of those eight, five of them are artificial. We got Mexico City at 9,500 feet to Vancouver in temperate, cool, sea level indoors to Miami at tropical, outdoors, sea level. So they want the grass and the surfaces to play the same and be consistent. And then you add in, there's 48 teams, which means there's 49 base camps. So each team has a base camp and so do the referees. The referees will have their own base camp as well so that they don't have to be necessarily the hybrid reinforced vacuum ventilation and grow lights but they have to be to fifa's quality standards which Mm -hmm. is pretty intense standards and then there's also what they call match day minus one venues which each stadium has to have one to two pitches available and then there's other training pitches so that adds it up to about a with the base camps match day minus ones and practice facilities could be over 120 fields. I wasn't great before all this. Yeah,
0: yeah. (laughs) All have to be natural grass meeting at least the minimum FIFA standards without the high tech that the playing surfaces have.
1: Right. That the stadiums are required. That the stadiums
0: are going to have. Right. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about this now for a second, because the first thing I would worry about is. Do we have qualified people that know what they're doing in managing all these surfaces around the country?
1: Yeah, well, (laughs) we're learning a lot. And actually, I think FIFA is learning a lot too, but that we have a lot of really great sports field managers. And that's one of the excellent things about the US, Canada, and even Mexico. They've become so educated and we've got such a support group that I'm very confident that's going to be the easy part is getting the right and qualified people in there. Um, You know, obviously some of these dome stadiums may not have... An actual turf manager, mm-hmm. but we've got an arsenal of people that we are training that know what to do to help go in and execute this.
0: Okay, so let's take on some of the technical aspects of it now, though. Let's start with the big one. The first thing you said about the Silver Dome that I remember from having some of those conversations is this thing is not built for having grass in here, period, never mind for a month. Right. You mentioned a bunch of artificial turf stadiums, obviously not necessarily built for natural grass to survive for any period of time. Number one, are you having to make any structural changes to any of the stadiums to be able to have the fields there? And number two, how long are these fields going to have to be in in some of these
1: artificial systems? So of the 16 stadiums, only one has a pitch that meets current FIFA standards, and that's Toronto. Okay. They got the dimensions, they got the hybrid reinforcement, they got grow lights, and they got the vacuum ventilation. The only thing that stadium's lacking is the seating capacity, which they're going to add. All the other stadiums need at least one of those components to be done, especially a lot of the American ones don't have the dimensions. So they're actually having to reconfigure some of the stadiums, take out a little bit of the walls, build up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the, the pitch things like that so okay it's a
0: so, so the jackhammer's coming out
1: yeah the jackhammer's coming out in some of these stadiums okay so.
0: very interesting and so when you said the toronto stadium is that robert hedges operation there on the lake bmo
1: yeah that's robert Hegge's bmo yes
0: i'm a big fan of robert's i've sent him a student in the past yeah i honestly believe he's been at this a really long time I would put him in the top five turfgrass managers I know in the world. With the amount of technology and the things that he is able to do up there, that is one of the most technologically enabled operations at BMO Field. How many seats are they going to try to add? Because... Don't they have to move those seats when they play Canadian football? Because you guys play that goofy end zone.
1: Thing. Yeah, real, we play real football in Canada. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, they will. So, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I think they're going to get it up to like 55,000. I think right now it's about 35. So they'll probably add some in the end zones and they'll probably add more luxury boxes. They're, they're more worried about the expensive seats probably, I'm okay. guessing. <laughs> That's out of my uh, realm. That's right. So
0: <laughs> let's go back to how long will these natural grass fields have to be in these high Hostile environments going back to your Silverdome days?
1: Yeah, so in the Silverdome, it was only 30 days. This time, we're as close to maybe 50 days. So 50, 60 days potentially. So even a little longer.
0: And that's where the grow lights come in, right?
1: That's where the grow lights come in. And obviously, I mean, that's just changing every year. So from going from the HPS, high pressure sodium to the, now the LEDs to the LEDs, you can control different wavelengths. Mm -hmm. We're doing all sorts of real cool things. And we got a lot of things that we can do with these LED lights to manipulate.
0: I wanted to ask you about that because you and I and Carl have talked about this on the Cornell Turf Show. Mm -hmm. And let's do a little bit of a dive here for a second, John. Talk about light recipes and what you're starting to see when you can very precisely manipulate the wavelengths of light coming out of these LEDs.
1: Yes. So what we've discovered is which takes more energy, but increasing the blue light, getting up to fifteen to twenty percent blue light and picking the right wavelength, you can increase all the secondary metabolites in the plant. So you're you know, you think of on a nutritional standpoint for people to eat or would be healthier, but if you look at it on a defense mechanism, all these second the zeaxanthins, the xanthophils.
0: Antioxidants, right? Yes,
1: we can increase them by anywhere from twenty to 35 45 percent with just adding this higher blue light we increased lignin content by 35 percent so making it a more durable wear tolerant Mm -hmm. plant But knowing that it's a living organism, you abuse it, it'll die. So the goal mouth where the assistant referees run up and down. This is what we're looking at when it comes to, as you said, recipes. After the game, switching it to more red light, get that elongation and recovery to fill back in and grow. Mm -hmm. And then how long does it have to be back under the blue light to all of a sudden reacclimate to that short, sturdy, high lignin content, more durable surface? And that's what we're starting to work on with a PhD student. Uh, This is the
0: great science. You know, this is the kind of stuff why we go to the moon. I mean... People say, why do you go to space? Well, you go to space because of all the goofy technology that you think is goofy, that like Velcro that becomes, you know, such an important part of our life. Now, let's talk a little bit about the practical stuff here, John. 9,500 feet above sea level, at sea level, down in Miami, in Toronto. How on earth are you going to get 120 operations to even remotely play the same?
1: Fortunately, we've been doing this work for several years, and I have a grad student who's actually finishing up this spring. It's taken him a little longer, JT. I'll throw him under the bus, but yeah. he's, been the, <laughs> he's been the field manager at Cincinnati SC for their training grounds for the last three years, and he's finally finishing up his master's work. And what he did was compared Bermuda grass and Kentucky bluegrass at different mowing heights and looking at different surface wetnesses. And we did high-speed video capture where we launched soccer balls into it and we captured so that the coefficient of restitution where the ball bounce, the angle coming in, the velocity coming Mm. out, and the angle coming out were the same. Uh, So that if a player goes from Miami on Bermuda grass to Vancouver, they're just going to be suffering from jet lag more than knowing that the ball's not, you're going to perform and play differently. We're trying to get it to be as similar as possible.
0: So first it starts with having the data, which as you're describing is the measurement mechanism that we're going to, we're going to shout out to JT to get that thesis done, get those letters after his name, not that he necessarily (laughs) needs them because he's already sort of beyond competent there. But then there's got to be something about moisture management and soil type. Are you hoping yes. to compensate for a lot of this, John, with the vacuum-assisted drainage?
1: Potentially, yes. These indoor stadiums, what, one thing we learned at the Silverdome is we never had to water the grass the whole month. It was basically in there because of the environment. You get such low transpirational loss. Now, it didn't have grow lights. So we're actually doing a dry down study under the LED lights, seeing how often, how much water we manage. Because we're also in these domes, we're looking at a shallow profile. We're only looking at a two, maybe two and a half inch system of grass Mm. in these dome stadiums. We want to use as little water as we need to because we don't want to overwater. But knowing that they like to water before the match and at halftime for the game, for the ball to skip and play. So we don't want to overwater, but we have that ability to suck water out if we have to.
0: Do you anticipate having to do any turf replacement?
1: We hope not. We're going to probably lay on the side of precaution that we would have to, but the plan is they don't want to replace any of these indoor stadiums. They want to get through the entire time on one surface.
0: Outdoors, where rain and weather could be a factor, again, I'm assuming that's where the vacuum-assisted drainage is going to be critical.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, because you never know in Miami. What you do know is probably at three o'clock every day, you're going to get an afternoon thunderstorm roll through, right? Yeah in the summertime. So we can always add water. It's really hard to take it away if you don't want it there. That's right. Anything to assist with it.
0: I'll get you out of here on this. We'll take a break and then we'll come back and have our last segment. I want to talk about the implications of this. We'll pick up a little bit of NFL stuff on the other side of this, but I want to talk about the implications of this, of actually pulling it off. You know, you're talking about a two and a half inch installation. How long is it going to take you guys to put it into these stadiums? You know, because to me, the natural grass fields, those are those are management issues. There might be some more controllable things. You've got tarps and a whole ton of stuff you can do inside. There's just a whole bunch of limitations as you learn from your time in cutter. Did you learn things in cutter that are going to help you in having these systems in these artificial areas for this period of time?
1: Yeah. So I wasn't really involved with a lot of the cutter. I got access to a lot of the data and had a lot of conversations afterwards. Mm -hmm. So the big thing we've learned is we're hoping with is match scheduling, Mm -hmm. you know, given the pitch, time to recover between games. And so that's going to be one of the big things is to be able to have it do that if we want to keep our focus of consistency and uniformity across the surface and across stadiums and across venues and training facilities. So that's the key that we're really looking a lot into. We're taking the cukuya grass out of Azteca Stadium because that's a third type of grass. And you look at the weather and it's perfect climate for cool season grass. So yeah. we've been doing studies up there, looking at blue and ryegrass up there.
0: Yeah. Jackie Guevara did an absolutely spectacular job. In fact, I think she won the award at the crop science meetings for outstanding paper. And she did. And she deserved every bit of it because right in the beginning of her, her presentation, the whole AV system collapsed. And talk <laughs> about a poised professional scientist. Uh, Jackie, Guevara definitely presented herself as a thorough pro at the crop
1: science meeting. She's outstanding and recently successfully defended her comprehensive exams. So I'm on I'm on her PhD committee. Ah, the future looks bright with her. for oh, sure. This is
0: so great. I'm so glad to have you, John. Let's take a break. I'm with Dr. John Sorokin at the University of Tennessee. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back. Product applications on high-performance sand-based systems require a high level of precision, especially high-traffic areas. Using GPS sprayers to target these areas is key to maximizing performance and minimizing product use. Ken Ross and the pros at Frost Spray Technology can guide you through the GPS process. Learn more about GPS technology from a sprayer company that specializes in it at FrostServe.com. That's Frostserv.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm with John Sorokin. And John, you know, you brought up something earlier about your work with the NFL. And I don't want to go down that hole too much because gosh knows there's a bunch of stuff one can talk about. Right. But certainly when you're sitting around a table with neuroscientists and kinesiologists and mechanical engineers and AI and computer science people, data scientists looking at that kind of stuff, with people who get paid to bang into each other for a living, uh, so to speak. yeah, That's got to be really interesting to try to discern what is the aspect of my role here. You know, how does it fit into the whole other part? Now, obviously, you're there as part of the player association, but you're also, you know, sort of understand how these fields work. Mm-hmm. Do you find yourself looking for the data? You mentioned Cutter, you got access to the data. This seems like a place where that's a comfortable area for scientists like you and me to just sort of inhabit. Let's just talk about the numbers that we have here. Are you pleased that that's sort of the nature of your role and the sort of nature of the conversation that it's about the numbers and safety?
1: Yeah, well, you always want injuries to drop and decrease. So... Being able to be part of it and try to come to solutions for it is very valuable and I think very rewarding. We haven't seen a drop in the last... 10 12 years since the monitoring is going on on artificial turf and so you know there's three components that contribute to that it's the surface it's the athlete and the footwear mm-hmm. and we really need to talk a lot more about the footwear as well because a lot of the footwear that these players are wearing or that's made they're wearing not the same cleat on artificial as they are on grass mm-hmm. and you know they get them too much traction and the players interact differently so I think we still are just at the tip of the iceberg of trying to figure out what we can do to make improve player health and safety for sure when it relates to the surface
0: how do you reconcile that particular fact. I remember an Australian footballs paper a while ago that talked about, you know, how they're likely, you know, athletes oftentimes might pick shoes that they perform mm-hmm. good in, but might increase the risk. That's yeah. obviously a decision they have to make, but it is an informed decision that they're making. I'm assuming.
1: Yeah. And there's some great papers out of Australia, John Orchard and stuff, looking at showing how when they wear those screw in studs mm-hmm. on Bermuda grass at Aussie, I think it was either Aussie rules or rugby, they had a mm-hmm. way higher incidence of ACL injuries. Mm-hmm. That's dating back some papers, but yeah. there's a reason NHL players have way less ACL injuries than soccer or football players, but they have more pulled groins and hamstrings because they're right. sliding on the ice and they That's don't right. catch. We don't want a player slipping, but we want that playability to be there, but safety to still happen. Injuries are going to happen, Yeah, but we just sure. want to reduce them.
0: Yeah. So let's get off this NFL thing with this last question, tying together what you're doing with FIFA and the NFL. You know, when you're closing your eyes at night and putting your head on a pillow and you're thinking about all this crazy stuff you're doing, growing natural grass on two-inch systems and synthetic surfaces, the NFL Players Association, which have you sitting at that table there, why wouldn't they turn to you and say, hey, Dr. John, why can't we have these fields when we play football at SoFi? I'm sort of curious about how hard a question that is to answer for
1: them. The low-hanging fruit is make everything grass, but it's all about cost and money. Mm -hmm. But you could look at Miami, the Dolphins, Mm -hmm. the longest they have a field outside, but in their stadium is three games because they have so many events going on. They have their own sod farm and they're just replacing it because the owner is committed to making it a good quality grass all the time. Right. So you could do that anywhere. You just might have to have some greenhouses in Minneapolis and Detroit, but <laughs> otherwise, everywhere else, you could easily do that. But I say easily, but by cost. And with these grow lights now, you could keep it in there for extended periods of time if you don't have events between games or Correct. things like that.
0: So it comes back to what you said earlier. That fundamentally, to have these grass systems inside in these places that weren't designed for them, so to speak, Mm -hmm. you just have to schedule them in a way that allows them to have what they need to perform. And if you have to put motocross in there or a boxing match in there, that the natural grass field has to come out.
1: Yeah, and just add an extra seven bucks to the ticket or whatever it costs to replace the field. I mean, Taylor Swift's been one of the best things for the NFL, but also for getting new fields for uh, stadiums. She puts her stage up, they put a new field in after she's gone. That's what you do. And
0: it's part of the budget that's on the concert, right? The concert just writes it into the budget. All right, so listen, we're in dream world (laughs) when it comes to talking about changing a professional football field six times a year or something goofy like that. But you also work with something called the Dream Academy. And what's funny, John, when I Googled you, you know, John Sirach in Tennessee and the Dream Academy is right at the top. So take a minute and talk a little bit about the Dream Academy and your role in it.
1: The Dream Academy is Dream Academy Soccer. And it's a foundation that we started back in about, I think it was 2016. And it started with, I got two boys, Charlie and Ian, but Charlie's my 16 year old. He's an avid competitive club soccer player. They both played soccer but when Charlie was really little one of his soccer coaches is a guy named Keely Fakili Kelio. And Keely is half Botswanan and half Welsh. But uh, him and his wife, they were moving from Knoxville to Raleigh. He's got a coaching job over there at a big club. And they came over and were visiting with my wife, Lisa, and I before they left. And like all good things, we're sitting around having wine, drinking wine. And they had just gotten back from Botswana. And Botswana in oh eight oh nine lost about a third of their population to AIDS, HIV. Uh. So... You know, really bad, and they wanted to start a orphanage or do something because there's so many kids that were orphaned and things, and the discussion went I think it was my wife, Lisa said, you know an, an orphanage is like putting a bandage on the problem. Mm. education is the key mm. and Cat, his wife, and Keeley took that, and they started the Dream Academy Foundation, where we are trying to help. Youth in Botswana through education and sport. It started off with an after-school program where we had Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we had volunteer teachers to do education, and then Tuesday, Thursdays, we had soccer, and they were playing soccer and sport. And it's grown to the point where we're building our own school. We're going to build a, hopefully a a signature golf course. We've talked with Ernie Els to build in and where we could bring in tourists and you go play golf and you stay at this resort and you've got elephants, you've got, Impala, giraffes, and then you go on a safari, whatever. But it supports the education, and we've sent five students over to the U.S. on scholarships to different schools, and it's it's a great way to give back. You know, I've been very fortunate, and to take my kid, I took Ian over there when he was fourteen, and just to help with the kids in schools, it's pretty cool.
0: It is pretty cool, and it's funny. Well, you know, when you're open to these sorts of things. They provide us opportunities and it's, you know, for a guy that doesn't have a lot of time on his hands that you're doing this, that it resonated with you, that you're giving your time to it It is certainly a testament to anybody who doesn't know you, the kind of guy you are sort of deep down for sure. I'm wondering about the whole idea of the things that attracted you, attracted me, attracted a lot of us to this. How much have we learned about life, John, and how much do you find the Dream Academy is teaching about life in sport?
1: Oh, absolutely. You you learn to work with one another, depend on one another. You learn leadership. You learn failure. You learn everything. And for people to be able to do that through sport, if there's any way we can get youth involved and keep them safe, and any way we can get athletes at all levels safe and involved to be able to participate when they're in their older years, it's the value. And that's the joy of this whole industry, I think, and just all the people.
0: And you've been involved, listen, you've had a front row seat, pal, to soccer trying to make its way with young people here in America. Absolutely. Are you hopeful that what you're doing for 2026 will bring even more attention and maybe soccer will be bigger here in the States? Certainly it's gotten bigger than it was. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of signals. It's only going to grow. Yeah. Do you think this is the time now?
1: Yes, I think so. I think this World Cup is going to catapult it like it did. You know, the MLS started after 94 and look at where it's been since then. Now we're here 30 years later and it's only going to just bring that much more. We've got the women's game is so big in the U.S. Football's mostly boys sports so or pretty much a boys sport. But this is one that's for men and women that can participate in. And it's it's big. Nothing's ice hockey, but it's big. <laughs>
0: So listen, so so as we wrap it up, right, you, you and I know that it's so great being involved at high profile things. I've had the chance to work on a lot of high profile things over my career, but what I call the missionary work of our work are the school districts and the communities that we service in our extension work that are trying to rub two nickels together to get safe surfaces for their kids. Mm-hmm. Are you feeling better that we're starting to maybe developing more accessible ways for everybody to play on safer fields, not just affluent communities?
1: Yes, I think so. And I think one of the big things is when you get right back to what we talked about a long time ago, technology. Mm-hmm. Lisa, my wife, for her master's degree, did a sports turf project, and she showed that mowing Kentucky bluegrass three times a week versus once a week gave you a lot higher quality playing surface. And this is for high schools. Mm-hmm. We couldn't do that budget-wise, but now we can with robotic mowers. Yeah. We can mow them every day, and we can have a higher quality playing mm-hmm. surface that is now safer for kids to play on because you mm-hmm. can now mow it when you couldn't before.
0: I always thought that was Vanini's research. He had that slide of the soccer guy. Yeah, no, and that and, was all Lisa's. Uh, that was Lisa's research. Yes, that's so great. Yeah. So you're very hopeful that part of FIFA coming here in 26 and the work that we're doing and the the excitement that it's creating will spill over to maybe help some of these uh, lower budget operations as well.
1: Absolutely. When Kylie spoke at the OTF last week, he said he had groundsmen coming up to them saying, you know, I can take from this to apply it to my fields. And we're looking at building these high level fields for World Cup, but it's getting back to the fundamentals and the basics, you know, hey, have a little nursery in your by your shop of sawed on plastic. You can go swap out that gold mouth as it starts the birdbath. And you can do these things yourself where you can constantly provide a nice, safe, uniform plane surface at lower budgets.
0: John, it is a great joy to be able to speak to you all these 30-something years since we (laughs) bumped into each other. Really appreciate you taking the time in your busy schedule to chat with me about this stuff. I know a lot of guys in the business. Well, thank you. A lot of folks in the business really like hearing behind the scenes. It's one of the things that I think we all share as an industry is exactly what you said early on. We know we're doing our work, honestly, when nobody's talking about it. And it's easy to get lost there, but you've really sort of done a great job in your career bringing the technology and and bringing the grounds manager to the forefront for the safety of the athlete. Thanks a lot for doing that. Thanks for taking the time to
1: join me. Thanks, Frank. It goes all the way back to when I took your class and you taught us about communication and the pesticide class. So it's great. Thank you. Thank you, John. John Sirokin, Distinguished
0: Professor of Turfgrass Science at the University of Tennessee I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. Thank you for joining us. Big thanks to Dr. John Sorokin. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dry Jack, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass, the plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability, and Frost Inc. spray technology products who strive to make your spray day a great day. You can listen to us on Block Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher, and if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York, by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger, graphic design Nicole Rossi, theme music Tucker Rossi, and executive producer Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining.